0: I think this is one of the hardest things I've ever had to do to say goodbye um, to a church that we love so much. We've said for a long time, Redeemer is our favorite church in the whole world. And I think that will still continue to be the case even as we go. It's, um, it is only the, it is, it is only the, the, the clarity that we have that God is the one moving us on that's given us the strength to do this. Let me just mention a few things to you as a a congregation before we move into the text. Things we've loved, things we've learned, and things we're looking forward to. We've loved um, being a part of this church. We've loved seeing God at work among you and being a part of what God is doing among you. It's clearly um, God at work among us. I think the things that have happened over these last five years um, cannot simply be explained by Um, by human actions. God has been at work. We've seen people come to know Christ. We've seen people grow in their faith. We've seen people um, join the church, use their gifts, and many be sent out from here to be used of God in other places. And it's been a delight to be a part of it. One of the wonderful things about ministry is you get a front row seat into what God is doing. And it's been a delight to have that among you. Things we've learned from you We've learned many things. We've learned that you don't have to be born in the same country to share deep and meaningful relationships. It's so wonderful to see God at work among the nations in this city and that this can happen with this shared language of, of English. We've, we've learned that God is at work all over this world and we've learned about the work of God in many different nations through the things that are happening here. We've learned that a church that preaches the gospel is powerful But a church that displays the gospel with love is even more powerful. And it's been a delight to see God's love, Christ's love at work in you, drawing many people into this community of faith. As Jesus says in John 13, By this will all men know that you are my disciples, by the love that you have for one another. And we know that there are true disciples here because of the love that we have received from you. Things we're looking forward to lastly We're looking forward to spending this next season as a part of a a brand new church here in Dubai. We'll be a part of Covenant Hope for this next season. And we're excited to see this new church get off the ground and learn through that experience. But even more than that, what we're really looking forward to is seeing not only new churches here in Dubai, but we pray in the days ahead, seeing new churches planted in the different nations represented here in Dubai. We're excited to see what God is going to do through the people that are being built up here and sent out. And we we are looking forward to seeing and hearing about new churches in Philippines and India, Nigeria and Kenya and South Africa and so many of the other nations represented here. And we're excited to see God do that. As I thought about how... Um, as I thought about... How I would hold out God's Word to you one last time as your pastor, I kept thinking of how the Apostle Paul summarized his ministry among the Corinthians. He said this, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So as I considered what I would preach for my final sermon as a pastor at Redeemer, I wanted nothing more than to do the same. To know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Turn with me in your Bibles to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 12, and we're going to be looking at verses 20 to 43. In our passage this morning, we see that Jesus is coming to the end of his earthly ministry. He's beginning the Passion Week, a week that will end with his brutal execution on a Roman cross. In chapter 11, the chapter before our chapter, he declared himself to be the resurrection and the life. And Jesus proved that by raising his friend Lazarus from the dead, from the grave. After Lazarus had been in the grave for four days. Well, as you can imagine, this great miracle caused quite a stir. As it happened just before the Feast of Passover. And Passover was the time of year where crowds would descend on Jerusalem in order to celebrate... And remember how God had freed his people from slavery in Egypt by making a way for death and judgment to pass over those homes that were covered by the blood of lambs. In terms of context, the Jewish leaders here are angry because Jesus at this time is popular with the crowds, which makes them envious. They craved attention and power. So the religious leaders planned to kill Jesus. See that in eleven forty-five to 57. They wanted to be rid of the competition and to be sure their leadership was not called into question by the Roman authorities. And they didn't stop there. We see in chapter twelve nine to 11, they even consider killing Lazarus too, the one that Jesus had raised from the dead, to get rid of the evidence of Jesus' miracles. Now consider the irony of this. Jesus raises a dead man to life, And the solution to the problem? Kill the man he raised to life. Yes, but he has the power to raise dead people to life. It just shows how blind and foolish sin can make us. Well, that's the religious leaders. But you also see in this section the crowds. The Jewish crowds are entertained by Jesus' signs, and they're intrigued by his powerful preaching. But their interest in Jesus will not last while they are interested in him for the miracles and his mysterious teaching, it will be clear that they are really interested in Jesus for their own plans and purposes. They wanted a Messiah, yes, but they really wanted a political one, a king like David who would lead them in victory over the Roman Empire, the, the, the occupying force that was oppressing the Jews. And when Jesus doesn't turn out to be the Messiah who fits their agenda, they quickly turn on Him. Within a week, they'll go from crying out, Hosanna, singing His praises, to within less than a week, demanding Pilate crucify Him, and even declaring, we have no king but Caesar. So here, while the Jews are rejecting Jesus... We see at the beginning of our passage, the Greeks. There are Gentiles who are at the feast who begin seeking Jesus. And our passage highlights that while Jesus' own people are rejecting Him, His plan all along was to be a Savior for the world, for all people without distinction. It was His plan to gather to Himself people from every tongue and tribe and nation. This is how John describes Jesus, the Anointed One, earlier in the book. He came to His own, And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. And this is what we'll see fleshed out in our passage. With that background, follow with me as I read through our passage this morning. John 12. We're going to read all the way from verse 20 to 43. This is God's Word. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify Your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Our text covers two themes, and these will be our two points this morning. Two themes. One, the glorious Christ. And two, the true disciple. One, the glorious Christ. And two, the true disciple. I pray that this morning we would see the glory of our Savior and believe in Him. But also that we would see the call of discipleship that we would count the cost and follow Christ. Let's begin with theme number one, point number one, the glorious Savior. Notice the Greeks at the feast begin seeking Jesus. Look with me back at verse 21. Perhaps they approached Philip because he had a Greek name or because of his heritage in Bethsaida toward the north of Israel, closer to the Greek areas such as the Decapolis. Look at their request to Philip in verse 21. We wish to see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. What a simple yet profound desire. John wants us to see that while the Jews don't yet have eyes to recognize their own Messiah, it is the Gentiles who desire to see Jesus. The text doesn't tell us if they were able to meet with Jesus. However, their arrival and their request seems to cause Jesus to reflect on the purpose of Of his coming. And so he responds in verse 23 by declaring, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The Son of Man, there is Jesus. It's a title he uses for himself. And we see him using this throughout the Gospels, particularly in connection with both his suffering as well as his exaltation, which would follow. He talks here about the hour that has come. The hour, as D.A. Carson puts it in his commentary, this hour is the appointed time of Jesus' death, resurrection, and exaltation. In short, His glorification. Here, Jesus is going to be glorified. Jesus says that the time has come for Him to be glorified. And it becomes clear that He has in mind all of these things. Not only His death on the cross, but also His resurrection and ascension which would follow where He will sit on His throne at the right hand of the Father in glory. Jesus being lifted up on the cross is the first step in the process of Him being lifted up eventually to glorification in heaven. But it's also the most important part of His glorification. For apart from His obedience on the cross, there would be no resurrection and ascension. And as counterintuitive as it may seem to us, It is at the cross that Christ's glory is most fully displayed. It is here at the cross that we see all of God's attributes and character on display at the same time. In this singular historical moment, we see His attributes, His love, His grace and mercy, His justice, His humility and patience, and His sovereignty all at work on display. It is at the cross where we most clearly see Christ in all of his splendor. At the cross, not only does Christ's glorification begin, it also reaches its height and climax. I remember as a young man seeking a wife and visiting jewelry stores, looking at diamond rings and looking especially at the particular diamond that I was interested in. And what happened when I went into a jewelry store? The jeweler would lay down a piece of black velvet and against that black background would allow me to inspect that beautiful diamond and to see its brilliance and all of its beautiful facets as the light danced through every single facet. The cross displays the manifold wisdom of God in all of its facets. All of His attributes unfold through Christ on the cross at the same moment. And at the cross, we are able to see, against the black background of that evil cross, the beauty of Christ's glory. When you think of the cross, you should think of the ugliness of it. The innocent God become man, being unjustly treated, being tortured and mistreated on On that cross, being treated as a criminal when he doesn't deserve it. And we should think of that as being ugly. Perhaps the worst event of all human history. But against the ugliness, the black background of the cross, we actually see the beauty and the glory of Christ on display. Let's look at just a few of the attributes of God and of Christ that are on display at the cross. At the cross we see the love of Christ. At the cross we see the wonder of the love of Christ. His love compelled Him to come to save sinners. In love, God in Christ laid down His life as a sacrifice for sinners like us. Look at how Jesus describes it in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Oh, look at the love of Christ on display at the cross. How in His sacrifice and in His death, He brings good even to His enemies. We not only see the love of Christ, we see the mercy of Christ as well. At the cross, Christ came to show mercy to a world of sinners. A world of sinners that had rebelled against Him. He showed at the cross His compassion against evil sinners. The worst of sinners who actually deserved the opposite. The only thing that we deserved was His judgment and rejection. And yet we see Him showing compassion at the cross. See there in verse 32, He says, When I am lifted up from the earth, that is on the cross, I will draw all people to myself. But we also see not only the love and the mercy of Christ, we see at the cross the justice of God. The justice of God is on full display at the cross. He came to prove that God is just. That He will not excuse sin and disobedience. He will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. In His death, Jesus took upon Himself the wrath that sinners deserve. You and I have sinned, and we deserve God's just wrath against our sin. And yet, Christ came and drank the full cup of God's wrath. Drinking every last drop down to the dregs, so that His people would be spared God's condemnation. Hear how troubled He is as He faces the prospect of taking on our punishment in in the wrath of God on the cross. Look at verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. As he faces this prospect of receiving the full weight of God's wrath on the cross, his soul is troubled. God Himself in the person of Jesus Christ, God become man, is troubled as he faces the wrath of God. And yet he asks, what should I say? Father, spare me from this hour? For this purpose I have come to this hour. And not only his justice, look at the humility of Christ. Look at the humility that that Christ takes on. He not only has already humbled himself by taking on our humanity. In the incarnation, Jesus, who was fully God, took upon himself our human nature, uniting God and man in his person. And he adopted not only our humanity, but the form of a servant. Jesus left heaven not just to dwell with us for a time, but to become one of us through the virgin birth. And not only did Jesus humble himself by taking on our humanity, but he became weak and poor. And he humbled himself even to death. And not just any death. The cruel death of a criminal on the cross. This cross that was invented To be a display of torture and humiliation, and Christ humbled himself. But look also at the patience of Christ. Look at our long suffering Savior. We see in our passage that he patiently endures rejection by mankind being rejected by the very ones He came to save. Look at verse 37. He had done so many signs before them. He'd spent His life for their good and they still would not believe in Him. Look at the patience of Christ as He endures being misunderstood, being mistreated, being abused and tortured by the very ones He came to save. But look also at His beautiful obedience. Look at the obedience of Christ. He obeyed His heavenly Father. Even as the Father led Him to the cross, Jesus was the perfect Son, praying, not My will, but Yours be done. I could go on and on about this all day, all week, all year, considering all of the wonderful attributes of Christ on display at the cross. And the rest of the Bible is actually explaining all of these things for us. Whether we're reading in the Old Testament and seeing his sacrifice prefigured and the need for his sacrifice seen through the sin of man throughout the Old Testament, whether it's being shown in the Gospels or whether it's being explained in Acts and the Epistles, all of the Bible is showing and holding out for us the beauty of Christ. He is the perfect mediator to represent us to God. He is the perfect sacrifice, the unblemished lamb who bore the wrath that our sins deserved. He is the great high priest who goes and presents himself as the perfect sacrifice, sprinkling blood before God. He is the triumphing King who on the cross, with the crown of thorns on His head, actually through His humiliation, triumphs over sin and death and the power of the evil one. As you see in verse 31, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So let me encourage you, since I don't have time to continue going like this, Christian, to apply this to your life. Let me encourage you, Christian, to meditate on the glory of Christ on your own each day. Looking at the glory of Christ is wonderful for two reasons. As you make it your regular practice to meditate deeply on the, the glory of Christ, you glorify God. You bring Him glory as you delight in the wisdom of God made clear to us in the cross of Christ. And do you know that looking on Christ and delighting in Him is what we will spend all of eternity doing? And we are able to begin that now as we meditate on Christ and on His glory. But not only does it glorify God, meditating on Christ, seeing Him as beautiful is good for us too. Because in the cross of Christ, there is a balm for every wound. There is a comfort for every hurt. There is an answer to every searching question. All of it is found there in Jesus Christ, seen most clearly in the cross. Do you realize, Christian, that the health of your soul depends on this act of meditating on Christ? On looking at Him and seeing Him as beautiful and delighting in Him above everything else. The discipline of meditating on the cross of Christ lends itself to our spiritual nourishment. I was reading this week an old Puritan pastor and his wonderful work, John Owen's The Glory of Christ. And he encourages us and his readers to always be reflecting on the glory of Christ. He says, this, the glory of Christ, deserves the severest of our thoughts, the best of our meditations, and our utmost diligence in them. Why? Well, he says, because our future blessedness that is in heaven is going to consist in being where He is and beholding of His glory, what better preparation can there be for it than in a constant previous contemplation of that glory in the revelation that is made in the Gospel? And do you know what will happen when we make this our practice? By a view of it, that is, by a view of the glory of Christ, we will be gradually transformed into the same glory. In other words, as we look at Christ and all of His glory, as we look at the beauties of Christ seen most clearly in the cross, Christ will be changing us. Christ will be making us and changing us into His image. We will, day by day, be looking more and more like Christ and better and better prepared to meet Him and prepared to do what we will be doing for all eternity, delighting and worshiping Him as our greatest treasure. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, do you realize that this Christ is the king of all creation, the one who made you, but yet also the one who came and humbled himself? He actually, God, became man in order to save sinners like you and like me. And that his command there In verses 35 and 36 is for you. Believe in the light while you have the light that you may become sons of light. As long as you are alive, as long as you are living and breathing and hearing this message, there is hope for you. Even if you're the worst of sinners, there is hope for you in the cross. God Himself has made a way for sinners like us to be with Him forever. Though we do not deserve it, yet it is offered to us if we will simply humble ourselves, repent of our sins, and trust in Christ, and Christ alone to save us. It's clear from this passage that there are two kinds of people. Those that walk in the dark and those who walk in the light. Which one are you? Well, that question leads us well into our second theme. Theme number one, the glorious Christ. Now, theme number two, the true disciple. The true disciple. The other theme of this passage is that of the true disciple of Christ. We see in this text the glory of Christ in His submission to death for our sins. But we also see Him glorified as His followers hear His call take up their own cross and follow Him. Follow in His footsteps. Now I want to say really quickly, there are many people, many people who are not Christians, who think they are, who have attempted to follow Christ and imitate Him in His sacrifice and death. Before we even think about what it means to be a true disciple, let me tell you, unless you are trusting in Christ, in Christ alone, to save you from your sins, you cannot be a true disciple of Christ. It will benefit you nothing to try to imitate Christ's life and his sacrificial service unless you first repent of ever being good enough for God to, to, to save you. However, those of us who have been changed by Christ are now called to follow him with the rest of our lives. And we see a picture of the true disciple in this passage in two ways. One, by hearing Jesus' call to discipleship in verses 25 and 26. And secondly, by observing the response of false disciples in verses 37 to 43. Let's look first at Jesus' call to discipleship in 25 and 26. Now, Jesus had just, in verse 24, explained how He was going to die like a grain of wheat, dying, going into the ground, and yet then bringing forth much fruit through His death this beautiful metaphor of how Jesus' death is necessary to bring eternal life to sinners like us through his sacrifice. But in the next breath, he turns immediately to challenge his disciples to follow him on his crossbound path. Look at his call to discipleship, starting in verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. You see what Jesus is saying. There are two kinds of people. He describes them in this way. Those that love this life, who will lose their lives, and those that hate this life, and who gain their lives. What is He talking about? Well, What he is talking about is that we, those of us who follow Christ, those of us who are saved by him, are going to imitate him by living our lives in this world in ways that will not make sense if you're only thinking about this world. Jesus lived his life in this world as if what was most important was not this life, but the life hereafter. And he did things that didn't make any sense to his followers, including at the cross laying down His life as a sacrifice for others, for the good of others. And what He's saying is those of us that follow Him are going to begin looking like Him. That is, living our lives in this world in such a way that looks like we hate our lives. That looks like we don't care about the success of our lives in this world. But the reality is we so value and treasure eternal life. We so value and treasure heaven and the life hereafter that we view this life very differently in ways that do not make sense to the watching world. But then you see in 26, He then says, If anyone serves Me, he must follow Me. And where I am, there will My servant be also. In other words, as He is headed towards death, those that would be His disciples need to follow in His path, even unto death, if He asks it of us. But at least by dying to ourselves and by dying to this world as we follow Him. But then these wonderful promises. If we follow Him, if we die to ourselves and follow Him, we get to be where He is. We get to be with Him. And not only that, but if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. We then see, secondly, not only the call to discipleship, but then the example of the false disciples. Look at verses 37 and following. We see people responding in two different ways. Some, like in verse 37, reject him outright. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Do you notice here that Jesus did great signs and wonders, and yet not everyone that saw those great signs and wonders believed in him? I wonder if you, like me, have ever thought, well, if I could just see a miracle, or if I could just show someone a miracle, surely they would believe in Christ. Do you know that that's not true? Many people saw amazing miracles. They saw a dead person come out of the grave and come to life, and yet so many of them still did not believe in Christ. Now, he's going to explain a bit of what's going on here, including talking a bit about God's sovereignty. And there are some hard verses here, as I'm sure you guys saw as you studied it in a small group this week. I'm not going to solve all of your questions about God's sovereignty and human responsibility, but I will say this. Both of these things are true, and they are true and set side by side and together throughout the rest of Scripture. It is clear from the Bible that God is sovereign over everything, including even those that come to Him and are saved by Him. But yet we are also responsible for our decisions and for our sin. Both of those are true. I was thinking also this week of what the youth were studying in regeneration last night. As Johan is taking them through the book of Exodus. Last night they looked at the plagues and about Pharaoh who God hardened, but yet who hardened his own heart the very least, what you see both here and in the life of Pharaoh is that our natural reaction to God when He reveals Himself to be the God, sovereign over everything to be the God who is in control of everything, when He reveals Himself to us in our natural state, we rebel against Him and we reject Him. Pharaoh did it. When God showed up and said, let my people go, I am the God. Your little Egyptian gods are nothing. I am the true God. What did Pharaoh do? He rejected it. And what did these people do when they saw Christ? They rejected Him. Some reject Him outright. They dismiss Him in unbelief. Others, interestingly, starting in verse 42, believe in Him. They have some kind of belief in Him, but they're afraid to step forward and to confess Him because the cost is too great. Look at verse 42. This is fascinating. Many, even of the authorities, that is, even of the religious leaders, believed He was the Messiah. They believed in Him. But what happened? They had some good doctrine. They saw Jesus and they believed this has to be the Messiah. But what happened? The cost of confessing Him and of following Him was too great. They valued something much more than being named with Christ. And what what was it? Being accepted in society. Being part of the synagogue. Being accepted by their family and their friends. And verse 43 says it so abruptly. They loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They loved their lives in this world more than they did consider the next. I think reflecting on these two responses to Christ should cause us to ask the very simple question. Am I a true disciple? Let me ask you, friend, this morning, are you a true disciple of Christ? Or are you just one who believes some things about Christ, but you aren't really willing to follow Him if He calls you to do things that are too difficult, too awkward, or too inconvenient? I ask you this because I love you, and I want you to evaluate your life now before it is too late. In terms of application, I wonder, Christian, in your evangelism, when you preach Christ to others, do you only hold out the benefits of knowing Christ without challenging people with, with counting the cost, which they must do if they are to follow Christ? Let me encourage you in your evangelism. You must do what Jesus did as He preached the gospel. Not only hold out the benefits of knowing Christ, which there are many, including eternal life forever with Him, having your sins forgiven. But there is and there will be costs to following this Savior. And if you follow this Christ, it may cost you everything. But you will be able to say at the end, it was worth it. I remember my wife studying through the book of Mark with a a Japanese girl who attended here for some time. And she really wanted to know what it meant to be a Christian. And they had five or six studies together This girl read all the way through the book of Mark multiple times. And she got to the end of that study and she realized, if I'm going to follow Christ, it's going to cost me my family. If I I were to follow Christ, I would have to shame my parents. And she said, I can't do it. I can't do it. And she thought, well, maybe someday I will, but for now I can't do it. The cost is too high. Others will believe in Jesus for a time. And there's benefits that they want for Him. Like the crowds who thought that Jesus could benefit them by freeing them from the Romans. There are others who will believe in Christ for a season, for a time, until that moment when Christ asks of them something that they're not willing to give. And they're going to walk away from Him. Look around in this room. There are people here today who one day are going to walk away from Christ because the cost is too great. Let me encourage you, friend. Friend, take this warning now. Steal yourself and be ready to follow Christ, whatever He asks of you, knowing that it will be worth it. Christ calls us to follow Him even unto death, if that's what He asks of us. I think sometimes we can think, well, I'd be willing to die for Christ, right? We all can tend to think that. We have, very, um, we have very inflated thoughts of our own strength. If it came to that moment in which we would have to be martyred to name Christ, we'll be ready for that. But how do you get ready for that? How do you make sure that you are ready if Christ asks you, perhaps, to lay down your life for Him? Well, Daniel Moundu recently used an illustration at the men's breakfast of of the, the many Kenyan runners who win all the marathons all over the world and who are always ready for every marathon race for every difficult challenge of athleticism. And what makes them ready? Do they show up without training and somehow because of their physical makeup as Kenyans? Are they now just able to to win marathons? Well, no. What Daniel said is the same thing we need to hear. They're training every day. Every morning they're out there running. And the hope of being able to win the prize wakes them up in the morning to begin the difficult work of training. And that training every day, every day, without, fair, without fail, is what prepares them for that ultimate challenge of running that marathon, the 26.2 miles. And in the same way, Christian, I'm not sure what Christ is going to ask of you. And there may be a day where he asks of you something incredibly difficult. Perhaps some among us to be so persecuted that we would even lose our life for him. It's possible. But if you're going to be ready for that, you need to take steps of obedience today in smaller things so that you're ready for that. In other words, we cannot think, I'm ready to die for Christ, but I'm not willing to be inconvenienced for him. I'm ready to die for him, but I'm not willing to be put in an awkward situation for him, to be shamed for him, or to bring shame on others for him. Christ already took upon Himself all of the shame that there was. The shame of this world and the shame of His heavenly Father. But He did it for you and for me. There are small things that He is asking of you to do today that is going to prepare you one day to continue to make those difficult sacrifices. It may be something small. Something as small as stepping forward and saying, I need to be baptized. I need to step up publicly and name myself as a follower of Christ. Christ is mine and I am His. It may mean that you step away from your anonymous Christian life. And step forward to membership in this church or another healthy church. Because you say, I, I'm not just here as an anonymous believer in Christ. But no, I want to be named with Christ's people and with His followers. And I want to live my life in the community of faith it may mean that you need to begin telling people that are close to you that you're a Christian. Whether it's your family, whether it's co-workers. And it may mean that you have to do difficult and awkward things for the sake of Christ. But whatever it is that He's calling you to do today, let me encourage you, Christian. Obey Him. Follow in His footsteps. Even be willing to do difficult things. Even be willing to be rejected by others so that one day you would be honored by the Father in heaven. As the Apostle Paul put it, as someone who actually was rejected by his family, who actually, the Apostle Paul, who walked away from the religion of his fathers, said it in Philippians 3, 7 and 8, whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In other words, for those of us who know Christ, for those of us who are brought into this relationship with Him, whatever it is that He asks of us, it's worth it. Because we get Him. And if we get only Him and nothing else in this world, it's worth it. It's worth it because we get to be with Him forever. And delight in Him forever. And I think we can say like... Like David Livingston said after a life of service and taking the Gospel to the continent of Africa. At the end of his life, having spent so much time away from home and family preaching the Gospel to others, he said, I never made a sacrifice because of all all of the benefit that he had in knowing Christ and preaching Christ to others. But me... Let me close by drawing your attention to the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 28 to 31. Jesus gives extravagant promises to those that leave behind even family and possessions for the sake of obeying Christ and his call. He gives them extravagant promises. Peter, it's right after the rich young ruler has walked away from Christ because Christ called him to, to sell all that he had and to follow him. And for the rich young ruler, it wasn't worth it. He preferred his possessions in this life. Peter then says to him, Look, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said this, a wonderful promise. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive back a hundredfold now in this time Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying even if it costs you many different things in this life. Even if you have to leave behind family, friends, possessions for the sake of Christ. You're going to get so much more back that you will not feel the sacrifice. You think of the Apostle Paul who was rejected by his family and his country for following Christ. He was no longer able to be a Jew, a part of Jewish society because he was following Christ. But yet in all of the letters, you see him talk with all of this family language about his true sons in the faith. Or even in the book of Romans, his brothers and even... Some women that were like mothers to him, showing him hospitality. He found in the community of faith all of the family that he left behind. I'd love to say to you and encourage you this morning that you have in some ways fulfilled this for us over these last five years. I remember saying goodbye to our family five years ago to come and to join with the ministry here. And I remember it being particularly hard to say goodbye to close family and to bring our little, at that point, 10-month-old daughter away from her grandparents and her cousins, aunts and uncles. Remember, my mom, over these last five years, has struggled with this. For, for her grandchildren to be growing up so far away from her. I remember recently showing her this passage and encouraging her mom, invest deeply in your local church. You'll find in the community of faith all of the family that you've lost for the sake of the gospel. And you have been that for us. You have been a family for us in in such a way that we don't feel that we've sacrificed. We've gained so much by being a part of you. And it's been a delight to see God at work among you. Let me encourage you, Christian. Whatever it is that Christ asks of you, and he may ask everything of you, it will be worth it. And on the last day, you will not be put to shame. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank You for Christ. Thank You for His beauty that is on display in His sacrifice on the cross. Thank You for how at the cross the Gospel so beautifully brings sinners to be reconciled with You, a holy God. Thank You that You have called us now to live a life that follows Christ and that looks like Christ, we pray that you would give us the strength to pay whatever it costs in this life for the sake of the next. And even as there are partings, and will be partings for the sake of the gospel, that you would comfort us and encourage us that it's worth it, and that one day we will be able to say we never made a sacrifice, we gained everything through Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen.